Hello, I'm co-host Brooklyn Arroyo, and this is 100 Alumni Voices podcast, Stories That Inspire, where we explore the personal and professional journeys of a diverse group of 100 doctoral alumni from Johns Hopkins University. Today, we're joined by Beth Holland, EDD in Entrepreneurial Leadership within Education. Hello, Beth. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm really excited to work with you and, and see what, where the conversation goes. So let's just start off with, I've never heard of entrepreneurial leadership within education. So would you like to explain a little bit of what that looks like? Sure. So the program is inside the School of Education. It's a education doctorate program. So we were doing an applied dissertation and the entrepreneurial leadership and ed program was really focused on what do we need to be able to do to think about leadership in new entrepreneurial ways. So we took a lot of courses in like actually in entrepreneurial leadership and turnaround leadership, um, really focused on what can we do throughout the sector and throughout the system to help be driving education forwards? Um, so it, we took some policy classes, some business classes, our ed classes, um, but it was a real interdisciplinary program. Okay. Okay. And so how did you find before going into that program yourself interested in that work or did you sort of happen across it by accident? That's a great question. I had been working in the education technology space for years. Uh, so I had been a tech director in a school, and then I was working as a professional learning consultant with a startup. So I was very much in this like startup mode mm-hmm. at tech space. We were moving really quickly. And I hit a point before I applied where I found myself starting to say, like, I don't know what I don't know, but people would say like, oh, we're investing in, you know, thousands of dollars worth of devices. How do we know if it works? Or mm-hmm. what do we need to do at a policy level to be driving education forward? And through all of those conversations, I actually spoke to one, my advisor from my master's program, which mm-hmm. I had done in technology, innovation, and education and said, you know, I really wish I had this degree where I could keep the ed tech focus. I could also learn a little bit more about business. I could dig into policy. You know, how do I create this interdisciplinary degree? And he said, funny, you should mention that. Why don't you look at the program that's at Hopkins? And so that was how I found the entrepreneurial leadership and ed program, just because I was trying to figure out how do I pull all these pieces together? Mm-hmm. And that was the one that emerged as a really strong option. Wow. So it sort of just was the perfect fit for you, even despite it's not necessarily specific program or space of study and and how multifaceted it was. So now within, you know, post EDD, did you step away from academia? Did you step back into the world that you were previously? How did that look for you? Uh, So I really wasn't certain when I finished up my degree, if I wanted to go into academia or if I wanted to stay outside of it. Um, so what I ended up doing was 
I don't know if I advise it, but I took a postdoc at a university, which put me straight into the university space. And I took a part-time job with a nonprofit. So I was working as um, the digital equity project director for the Consortium of School Networking, which is a nonprofit that kept me in the ed tech space, but put me in more of a leadership role where I was really focused on the policy and the research issues that where I was super interested in from a digital equity perspective. And I then spent the year working in a university setting. And I got about eight months into it and said, like, university isn't moving fast enough for me. I, I'm a startup person. I move really quickly. And this is not this wasn't really for me. And one of the pieces I find really important, especially in education, is how do we bridge like the research practice gap? You know, so much research happens and then it gets stored away in academic journals, you know, and it's written for academics. And that's not the language that teachers and leaders are speaking. And so I really like the position in the nonprofits. I was working alongside leaders. I still was very much connected to the reality on the ground. And so that's when I decided you know, at the end of the postdoc to go into the nonprofit space and not the academic space. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you have? You, you mentioned briefly, you didn't know if you recommended this pathway, but what advice do you have for those who are in similar fields of education and sort of multifaceted fields that you think would really benefit them post-EDD, post-doctoral experience to have a glimpse of that academia so you can sort of see what that was like for you or, or what does that, what, what, what are your thoughts there? I mean, I learned a lot working as a TA for my advisor. So that was also a helpful piece. So while I was a student, I was getting a sense of that. Uh, some really good advice I got was publish early. So how can you start thinking about publishing while you're still a student, whether it's part of your dissertation or some aspect of it. And then I mean, I think the biggest skill, and this is something I'm always looking for now that I'm in a position where I'm hiring new people, is really think about how are you going to communicate about research to the broader sector, to the broader field, and not just in the academic space, because that's a skill, especially in education, that's really valued. Mm -hmm. And to understand, you know, what does it look like when it's not, I guess this is another piece, start thinking about how do you embrace the mess? Because Mm -hmm research in the wild when you're not in a lab setting. I mean, a thousand things go wrong. I spent half of my morning untangling a couple of projects that we're working on where, you know, we're with real life people and things happen. You know, we, we had a plan, the plan's not working, we're adapting. Um, So any, any opportunity to start thinking about how to work directly in the sector that you want to target, you know, internships, projects that you can tie to some of your dissertation work or research I think that's, it's really helpful. Mm-hmm. So you stepped into the more nonprofit world and, and, and that's what you're currently working in now, right? Right. So do you feel that your academic experience within this program really prepared you for this or did it fall short in some areas to step into this sort of world? So I think the first thing that was really helpful was being in an EDD program versus a PhD program, because we did dissertation, like in our dissertation research in the field. Mm -hmm. So by the time I graduated, I knew how to run a needs assessment. I knew how to design a program and measure it. Um, I knew how to work with stakeholders. I knew how to go out and find resources. And a lot of those skills are what's really important moving into the nonprofit space 
I think a big piece too is I learned the rules of research and now I know how to break them and where I can break them. Mm-hmm. So when we have to make a trade-off or we have to meet the needs of a client, I can say, I know where I want to bend and where I don't mm-hmm. um, and what's really important. And it's also let me understand how do I adapt the process I learned so that it's more collaborative. Um, we do a lot of co-design of research with the partners that we're working with. So it isn't us coming in and saying, these are our research questions and we're going to do this research to you. Instead, it's very much, we're going to come in and design this with you and we're going to help you figure out what is it that you really want to learn and then how can we help you learn it? Mm-hmm. Definitely. So day to day within your, the work that you're doing now, what does that sort of look like? You briefly mentioned untangling some projects. So what does your day to day look like? Oh, I don't know if I have a day to day. So, I mean, I work for a very small national nonprofit. We were virtual before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, right now I'm working across, I think, five separate projects. Some of them I'm playing a supporting role to my colleagues who are running programs. So mm-hmm. I'm working and I have a colleague who's also a Hopkins grad, um, mm-hmm. fantastic researcher. And so that I should say we, um, so we provide internal measurement support and we have our own projects with external stakeholders. So mm-hmm. we're designing studies with them. So this morning I was, you know, finalizing a informed consent form and building out a survey while shifting gears to work on a proposal for another project. And then we're doing some strategic planning right now. So I've bounced between all of those. Um, we're designing some new measurement tools to support an internal project. Uh, mm-hmm. But every day is a little different. There's, I spend a lot of time in meetings. We do a lot of work uh, synchronously with colleagues and with clients, helping them to build out their capacity. So mm-hmm. I think that's one of the pieces is exciting is there's always something new and there's always something to try and figure out. Definitely. Each day is a new day. And so within your projects, is there more long-term payoff? And do you see your fruits of your labor almost immediately? How does that look for you? And what were some of the experiences that you did have, if any, where you were able to see some of the fruits of your labor or successes of your projects? So our projects run across various timeframes. Um, I just wrapped up at the end of last year. Uh, I had inherited a project from my predecessor in the organization, but we wrapped up a five-year research practice partnership with the districts in California, um, Lindsay Unified. And at the end of it, to see just like the volume of work that we were able to produce and the ways that as we produced interim reports, we were able to help them make immediate adjustments and improvements. So a lot of work around their personalized professional learning program. Um, what's really exciting right now is we help them do the evaluation of the first year of their teacher residency program. And so the findings from that, I think this is our biggest piece of what we do as an organization at the Learning Accelerator is it's not just that we reported back to Lindsay and said, here's what we found. These are all the ways that you were successful, but we've spent a lot of time communicating it to the field saying, here's how any school might start to think about implementing this kind of program. And these are the real lessons that we've learned that are successful, that could be successful across contexts, especially given, you know, teacher shortages. So there's those like immediate push them out into the field. Um, and there's the immediate impacts onto the organization 
Um, I did some work with another district where the immediate impact was just building the capacity of the district research team. You know, we were in a partnership where it wasn't about us doing all of the analysis and everything, but us coaching that team through how to do it so that they could then do more work in the future. And so now we're talking about, okay, we we were able to do a study of learning acceleration after the pandemic. Now we want to do a study looking at the virtual academy and how we can make improvements there. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's that capacity. Sometimes it's from the results. Um, Some of our work is developing new tools and resources for the field. And so there's an immediate like, hey, we built this thing and now you can use it too. And then getting the feedback um, from people who take it. So Mm -hmm. it comes in lots of different directions. So within education, I both of my parents are within education. So they went to school and they became teachers. And I think that oftentimes there's a uh, misconceptions about what education looks like. And then within the systemic and logistical side, people just don't really know what that looks like at all. So is there anything that you think that the people may not realize works this way within education. I don't think that people understand that it's really a more in-depth process than it actually is. So could you shed some light on on how more intricate those systems are than I think people think mm-hmm. that to be? So we, as an organization, we like to say that we're working on the leaping edge. So not quite that, like totally out there, leading edge set, of like really innovative school models, but we're working a lot alongside districts that are saying, you know, we've done things sort of the same way and now we want to make a shift and how do we do that? And so we're in support of that because again, as an organization, we have a vision that we say, you know, every child from an equity perspective, every child should have an equitable, effective and engaging education. Mm -hmm. And to do that, we believe that it should be focused on the whole child right? So both academic, cognitive, non-cognitive, extracurricular, career technical, um, it should be like mastery based, right? So we're thinking about learning not as seat time, but as like actually learning everything and that it really needs to be personalized. And so how are we making sure that we're personalizing to students aptitudes, skills, cultures, identities, languages? And we're working with districts that say we we understand that. And now we want to understand how do we implement the instructional practices? Mm -hmm. And just as important, how do we think about the system conditions that like the ecology that is around every classroom? Because you can have great instructional practices. And if the policies contradict them, then it's never going to come to scale, right? Mm -hmm. Or if the materials aren't available, or if the technology infrastructure isn't there. And so we're taking this ecological perspective to say, how can we understand the system? Because as you said, you know, there's some misconceptions like, oh, anyone can just pick up a book and teach. And it's like, well, hold on, because we need to understand everything about our kids. And we need to think about whether or not what we're using supports the instruction that we want to do. And, you know, we really embrace that complexity. And so it's the way we communicate it to the field, like we have a resources and guidance site. And on that site, you know, you can search by instructional practice. You can search by system condition. Mm-hmm. And we try to make those strategies really transparent by working with districts and capturing their stories, communicating that back out, and then helping, again, to help the sector learn faster and to learn more effectively about what's possible 
if we think about these practices and conditions. Right. And so within your experience, do you feel that you have seen uh, progress in these areas of districts viewing the student as an entirety of a person and viewing the environments for what they really are? And it's not just some person teaching a kid how to say the alphabet. And do you think that there is some positive growth within the past five, 10 years of education? There's, you know, there's always growth. And I think one of the things to remember is, and I can't give the correct number off the top of my head, but, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of schools in this country, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's thousands and thousands of districts. And particularly right now, there's a definite regionalization that's happening and there's different layers and types of education that are happening in different places. I think there's always progress. Um, you know, in the EDD program, we read, um, Larry Cuban and David Tyak's book is like a seminal text about tinkering toward utopia. And it was written in 95 and it could have been written yesterday. And they talk about how change is both like linear and incremental as well as cyclical. So sometimes, you know, you're asking me about five to 10 years and I'm like, I've been in this field for over 20. And I can tell you that there were conversations that happened 20 years ago that are popping up again today. And they're acting like it's brand new. And it's like, well, things have changed a little bit. Um, but we're just having the same conversation. And honestly, the perfect one right now is all the talk about artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to have chat GPT and it's going to change this and change that. And a few of us have been scratching our heads and we're like, wow, you know, there was AI in early 2000. Mm-hmm. And there were conversations about that. And it's just that, you know, there was this little incremental change and now we've cycled right back around to some things. So mm-hmm. there's always going to be change and it's always happening in different places. And then it's just a question of, I think it it becomes a question of scale and we can have the best intention teachers, but we also have to have the conditions that support them so that they can actually enact the practices that we, we know from research and that we know are super valuable to kids. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And, and all of society really, I think that they would agree that progress is usually cyclical and, and not necessarily linear in the vast majority of settings. So I think that another question that is important to ask you, because you are on the more systemic and logistical side of things, what would you say to those who are thinking of or have already left education for the idea that the the systems aren't working and that the supports aren't there? And what would you say to, to some of those people? I think that's a very broad question. I mean, I think that's where let's break this down and be more specific because I'm not a fan of like big generalizations. You know, right now there is a, there is a challenge. Let's talk about teachers. There's a challenge where the last report I read, like roughly 60% of the people start of the teacher surveyed said they wanted to leave the profession. Now that is also a regionalized challenge where it's happening more in some States than other States. So then we need to ask the question of, again, what are the system conditions that are leading to that. And, you know, there's questions right now around um, like censorship in the classroom and what can teachers say or not say, or political pressure, parent pressure, or demands because of testing. There's so much, again, there's a lot of nuance in this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we have a teacher who's left the classroom, it could be because attributed to any of those factors. It could be attributed to something entirely different. Um, I, 
you know, I left the classroom because I hit a point where I said, I've, I can make a difference with my kids and I can make a difference in this small setting, but I want to make a difference in a bigger setting. Mm-hmm. And so that was just a different change. Um, I have a colleague who was closer to the sector and is now working for an ed tech company. Mm-hmm. And by making that shift thinks that, you know, she might be able to influence things at the product level. And so she's you know doing great work over there. There's, we, we would have to deconstruct a lot of things. Um, I don't think I could give you a general answer. No, well, even that answer in itself was, was it really insightful, I think, to I, a lot of people, I think, just wonder why there is such a, a wave of wanting to leave the industry of education in general. And I think that you answered it in itself, that it is a complicated issue and that there's a lot going on. And within the reasoning behind that. And it's also very personal. So so for you, you briefly mentioned about how you shifted away from the classroom and into this bigger, wider stretching space of, you know, systemic logistical impact. And so for you, if there is one, what would the next phase look like for you career-wise? That is an interesting one. So I'm in a position right now, I'm very excited about where I am because I'm building a team. We're expanding our team. We're looking at expanding our reach and starting to think about how can we really take on a role where as a research and measurement team, we can help the sector as a whole start to tackle interesting questions and learn more effectively and efficiently. And so that in itself is a challenge that I believe is going to keep me busy for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm not sure what the next spot might be after that, because I have a very messy, complex challenge that's not going to be answered right away. And Mm -hmm. so we're right now thinking about what are the big questions that the sector is trying to answer and how can we help the sector to answer them? And like you mentioned before, every day is a new day. So sort of like you're progressing even within the work you're doing now. It's not necessarily going to be a promotional thing. You're constantly working through it and constantly growing in your career. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to do. And I think, you know, it's taking on bigger challenges, taking on bigger projects, working with bigger teams. Definitely. So within this podcast, we ask all of our interviewees the same final question to sort of grand finale sign it off. And so that question is, what inspires you right now? What inspires me right now? I think we were having this conversation as an organization. And I think deep down what I've always held and what's always kept me in the education space is in its most simple form, like it's not the kid's fault. You know, I think about kids, right? Like they are at the mercy of their contacts. They're at the mercy of their surroundings. Um, You know, they don't necessarily choose the school they go to or the neighborhood they grew up in. And so what always inspires me is how could I try to make sure that every single kid could have an education that would allow them to meet their full potential. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the big, that's my big focus is like, it always comes down to like, what can we do to help kids do better or to, not to do better? How can we make kids learning and lives better? Um, Definitely. So, yeah. And it just takes lots of shapes and forms, but, but that's, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And that's life. And we're all, different people and individuals, but we 
we're all equally as inspiring as the, the next. So I really appreciate it. I found our conversation extremely insightful today. So thank you for coming on to the Futures podcast. Thanks for having me. And I hope to speak with you again.